I'm Barbara Bray. Welcome to my Rethinking Learning podcast, where I have conversations with inspirational educators, thought leaders, and change agents. Hi, everyone. I'm so lucky today. I have Jennifer Casatad here. Oh, I'm so glad you're here, Jennifer. I'm the one who feels lucky. I'm happy to be here, Barbara. Thank you for asking me. Oh, this is so cool. So I usually introduce, uh, you know, who's here to everyone. So do you mind if I just take a moment and just uh, boast about you? (laughs) Absolutely. Boast away. (laughs) So Jennifer is a teacher librarian in Aurora, Ontario, Canada, and author of the book, Social Lydia. And I love that name. And um, this was, your book was published by Dave Burgess Consulting. I, I interviewed Dave, and what a great company, isn't it? Absolutely. It, the utmost admiration um, for Shelley and Dave. I could not have asked for more personable and amazing publishers, truly. Oh, we'll, just, we'll give them a plug. How's that? Yes. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so before you, know, you wrote the book, you spent six years at the district level as a program resource teacher for literacy and literacy consultant. You did that after, you know, right after you became a consultant? Or which was first? Yes. That's right. Was, okay. Yeah. Well, you also, there's a lot of other things we're going to talk about, but you guest hosted on our Twitter chat my Twitter chat, Rethink Learning. And I learned about you virtually. And then I met you at, I mean, I met you before that. I met you at ISTE. So I really, really wanted you on the podcast to learn more. So welcome, welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much, Barbara. I have so much admiration and respect for how much you bring people and educators together. I really, truly do. So thank you for having me. Oh, that's just so great. And so usually I start out... Um, because there's always something we don't know about people. And I always like to kind of learn a little bit about you and your family. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about you first? Absolutely. So I am a mom and wife. Um, My husband is an administrator. Um, He's a vice principal at a local school. And I have two daughters, one who just started university um, in a marine biology program. It's what she's always wanted to do ever since she was a little girl. And my other daughter hates school. (laughs) She's in grade 11. Um, And I have spent... Um, you know, that's my primary role as a mom. I, uh, I was on the parent council. I was co-chair of the parent council. I, I'll never forget it. I walked in the first day when my daughter was in kindergarten. I went to my first meeting ever and I went home and I was the co-chair of the parent council. <laughs> and my husband said, pardon, what did you do? I'm like, I don't know. They needed a co-chair. I wanted to get involved. And I never, ever have looked back since, um, you know, being involved in my child's school has been a, an integral part to who I am, but also um, just so important uh, to my relationship with, uh, with their school. So what are their names? Sydney and Kelsey. So Sydney is the one in university and Kelsey is um, the one in high school. Wow. You sure look young, though. (laughs) Oh, I love you so much. (laughs) I just had a birthday, and I'm not feeling super young, so I really appreciate that. Oh, well, I actually got started in education when my children were in preschool. They had parent ed, and we had to attend parent ed. Really? Yeah, it was wonderful. I uh, I learned a lot and also had other people I could talk to about you know, is this normal? 
Isn't that right? You you just don't know when you're raising your kids if it's normal, especially in preschool. And though there's three of the uh, women I met there are still my friends today. And my daughter is 41. <laughs> oh, isn't that amazing? Well, I think yeah. what, what you say, like there are all these horror stories about parent counsel and the politics, and I had nothing but really positive um, interactions. And you're right, lifelong friends that I have developed as a result of the relationships there. Um, because it was an opportunity to get together with other people and just, you're right, ask, is this normal? <laughs> What am I supposed to do here? Um, we definitely need each other. We need to to create an environment where we're not judging each other, but we're, you know, bouncing ideas off of each other and, and using each other as a si- soundboard, but also as a support network. I think all of us needed that. So what was it like when you were a student yourself? When you were growing up, well, here's something you're no one, not a lot of people know. Um, when I entered school, actually at the age of four, I didn't speak a word of English. I spoke um, Sicilian, which is not, which is a, a dialect of Italian. And so I, I sometimes tell this story. When I got there, um, they brought in a translator to just gauge my, I guess, my intellectual ability, and no one could understand me. Um, so they chalked it up to lack of mental ability, um, because they just didn't know what I was saying. So I, the, the first, I would say the formative years in my schooling were very, very difficult because I was learning English, um, learning to read, learning all those things that, um, many people had already come into school with, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic that I'm a teacher librarian when, I really didn't have, no one read books to me when I was young. Um, I just, when I started to learn to read, it opened up this whole new world for me. Um, And so in elementary school also though, and this does come up in the book, um, I was severely bullied. Um, I was cross-eyed. Um, I had an accident when I was two and a half years old um, that rendered me cross-eyed. So I had very thick glasses, had a couple of operations. And so I was four, you know, called four eyes. And certainly my mom made my clothes because we didn't have a lot of money. So those were very, very, very challenging years. Um, Books were my reprieve because I didn't have any friends. It was really difficult. And I I lack of self-esteem. So I think I made a lot of poor choices, (laughs) you know, in high school. Um, and then as a student, I started to realize, you know, I needed to get good grades or, or school became important to me. In grade 11, I had a teacher, uh, James Stewart, who just absolutely enthralled me. And he was so passionate about literature. And that's when I really decided, okay, I think I want to do this. I want to be a teacher. And I want to make sure that I give opportunities to kids who are disadvantaged um, in a way that I kind of felt like I was. I would say, and then I was a good student from there on in grade 11, got good marks, went to university, went to teacher's college, did it very, very early, um, but almost became an, a McDonald's employee, which is, which it like full time. So, so at one point I had to decide, do I want to become a teacher because I had been so inspired by this teacher or I had a part-time job at McDonald's and really enjoyed it because of the social aspect and was offered, you know, a company car and all the benefits that would have come along with it. And the, the opportunity to go to the U- university of hamburgerology, um, in, <laughs> as well at, in Chicago. And I was like, Oh, what do I want to do? So I chose teaching and then the rest is history. And ironically, I did a keynote at I engage in Chicago at the university of hamburgerology 
Hamburgerology in Chicago, um, which was so, so cool and so full circle for me. Oh, okay. I have to say now, I know a lot of people that started in McDonald's. That was their first job. And so one of the things that a lot of people told me, my sister is one of them, who is a lawyer, a nurse and a lawyer. She said that what she learned was how to work with, work with other people and customer service and how to listen. And there's a lot of management and organizational things that she learned at a very young age. So that was cool. But I don't think people realize what it's like not knowing the language, especially a language where they don't have any interpreters, probably. Mm-hmm. So did you, I have two questions. Did you read any books in, in your own language, Sicilian? No. I don't know how many books would have even been written in Sicilian. Um, my uncle actually was a poet, um, but it would have been beyond me. So there are there are some books written in the dialect. Um, but no, I did not. I was a non-reader. I was a non-reader. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that must have been really tough. I mean, I'm trying to put myself in your place, not even being able to read and not even being able to see very well and then being bullied. I mean, all of those three things is a lot for a child. Yes. So now visually, I wasn't visually impaired. It was just that when you looked at me, it looked like I was looking at someone else. So I... Oh, so the perception from other people was, which which is why kids can be so cruel sometimes. Yeah. Wow. So that is really, okay. Got something new. Definitely. (laughs) I don't remember remember reading that. So that's pretty amazing. So after you became a teacher, what was your journey? I mean, did you go right into becoming a librarian or right start as a teacher? No, not at all. So um, I started as a teacher, as I said, at quite a young age. I was, tw- I will never forget, I was 23 and my class, the first class I ever taught was a media uh, literacy class and it was a grade 12 class and one of my students was 21 and he asked me to the prom. <laughs> He's like, you're only two years older than me. Like, yeah, good point. But no, I'm your teacher. So very, very young as a teacher, um, began as a media literacy teacher. I taught ESL. Um, I taught English. I taught religious education. I taught cooperative education. I taught special education, um, all at the high school level and in a variety of different schools. Learned so much from so many people um, when you do that, right? Some people stay in one school their whole lives. I moved and moved and moved. And then when I was at St. Teresa and uh, teaching English and special education, the opportunity for a program resource teacher um, at the board came up. And so I went in, I took that opportunity um, and was successful in the interview. And then I was at the district level for, I think, six years. Um, and, And that was a really, really amazing opportunity because I worked with a small but mighty team um, and we did everything. So, so in our board, we, we didn't have very many uh, team members, but so I, I dabbled in literacy and assessment and new teacher development. And then when we rolled out a 21C uh, technology uh, learning program for all of the teachers on our board, and uh, we're a fairly big board. We have 108 schools, or we did at the time. Um, so that was an exciting program, and I got and I got to work with some incredible educators, K K to 12, really. 
but then I'm, I really missed the classroom. I missed being able to have an idea and then implement it and wait for to work with the teacher and then never really be able to develop those relationships. And then I got to work with some of our teacher librarians um, at the board and they're uh, sorry, in my district. And they're just incredible, all of them, the elementary ones, the secondary ones. And I thought, you know what, this is what I can do because it's very similar to what I'm doing at the district level, um, but it would be in a school and I would then be in back in a school culture and, and seeing kids on a daily basis. So I applied, I was unsuccessful the first time I applied to go back to a school and that was devastating, but meant to be. Um, and then the second time I applied to be a teacher librarian, I was successful and here I am. I've been here for three years. And, and what is your school? It's called Cardinal Carter Catholic High School in Aurora. It's literally though across the street. So right now I'm facing the school district office, which is where I work. So it's the funniest thing because instead my commute is exactly the same, but instead of turning left, I turn right into my school. So, <laughs> oh, that's so cool that you're you finally got that you know the job that you wanted. So how long have you been there? Um, so. Technically three years, but I'm not sure if you're aware. Um, my first year was uh, very rough. Um, I incurred a concussion on October 31st of that year, and I was off for almost the entire year. Yeah, it was a 10-month recovery for me. Yeah, it's one of the things. Yeah. Um, it's pretty scary mm-hmm. to have something like that. I I actually suffered a concussion, and so I have some residual from that with my eye. How are you doing now after that? I'm actually feeling incredibly blessed to be almost 100%. Oh, that's wonderful. It's a very scary thing. I don't think people realize how, you know, it's um, devastating and how much it takes out of you. It's just... (laughs) I didn't know. I had no idea. I had no idea of the... I think I, I, I knew, I had a clue of some of the physical symptoms that, you know, plague people, but I had no idea about the emotional symptoms and all the other things that came with it for sure. Well, you just don't know if you're going to get better in the beginning. It's so devastating. You just don't know how long it's going to take. So I'm glad to hear that you're, you're almost hundred percent. That is just a wonderful news and that you're back. So uh, that must've been scary for everyone in your, your family and, and the school. So I'm, it's good news to hear that you're okay now. Yes, I'm back, baby. You are back. Well, no one's gonna, no one's gonna stop you. No one stopped me. Sure. That didn't stop me. So, so let's get into um, because you talked about media media li- literacy and how you love that, and that's how you're into teacher librarian. And so, um, why does digital leadership matter? I mean, you, you know, you came up with that. That's kind of what made you want to do your book, right? Actually, so um, I don't know how many people know this, but I think quite a few people know this. Digital leadership is actually a concept that I've borrowed or I've sort of taken from George Kuros. Um, He has become or is an incredible mentor in my life. And um, the story that I tell in the beginning of the book is how my daughter was asked at a job interview, what social media are you on and what will I learn about you if I go there? And that when I reflected on it, even though I had been working at the district level and supporting teachers to connect with one another, um, I did not mentor my own child when it came to social media at all. You know, it was always this, um, I guess, underlying fear that prevails in so many different ways. Um, and rather than mentoring her and, and showing her what she could do online, 
I actually prevented her from doing things. And and I thought I was controlling her use. And I, re- I really, I realized in the end, I wasn't controlling anything because she had figured out, you know, the safe search that I had put on, she had figured it out in 20 minutes. Um, but, it, but it was George's definition of digital leadership, using the vast reach of technology and social media to improve the lives, well-being, circumstances of others, that really had a great impact on me because I thought, it, what if we change our stance towards social media and we help our students change their stance towards social media, towards a digital leadership stance? What might that look like? And so in my journey, I actually discovered that not every adult was like me. There were many, many students with adult mentors, not always teachers, unfortunately, who were were being supported with some of their passions and some of their ideas when it came to, you know, showing leadership online. So many kids who were being uh, awesome, who are changing the world literally, um, and are so, so young. And so that really has impacted me because I feel like there's an incredible chasm between the students, what students do with social media um, when they know that there's a possibility for good. And then many, many other students who really just look at it as a tool for entertainment. Well, I, I think they're starting to know a little bit more because I'm, I'm, it seemed to have changed in the United States with the gun control issue. When the, when those students started to get it out and March for our lives, that, that their hashtag. Um, but there's other things that I'm noticing is I'm noticing younger and younger students actually getting out for us. I'm not sure in Canada it's the same, but to get the vote out, to know that they have a voice and the way they're doing that is using social media. Absolutely. And so social media is social currency for young people, right? It really is and and has been for a long, long time. And I agree. So I started this work um, and this journey, I would say back in, so George started in 2013. And when I sort of heard him, it was probably 2014, 2015. So in three years, I have seen incredible changes um, for in a good way, right? In terms of our ability to listen to student voice, our ability to mentor students with class accounts more and more. I mean, certainly that's what I do. I go, um, you know, I have the incredible opportunity to go and speak to educators all over the world um, and speak to them about the the importance and the impact of a class social media account, for example. Um, certainly, a lot of the students that I um, showcase in the book have an incredible reach with others on social media as well. And, you know, I continue to showcase them. I continue to share out their work and celebrate them and shine a light on them. Um, and I think the more we do this, the better off we all will be for sure. And that's the part of your book that I love is the stories from the students. It's just, you know, it's their voices. And, um, you know, I didn't even ask you this uh, before. What, do that do you have opportunities for the people to hear their voices anywhere? I mean, do you have it you have it in your Twitter account, but do you have it on your website? So I'm not sure I quite understand, but I do have a companion well, uh, website for social media. It's called social okay. socialedia.org. Um and there okay. there are flipgrids on there um that connect to That's each of I the think. yeah, they connect to each of the chapters. Um and ed- many educators have shared there and then uh there's a Facebook page for social media as well. Oh, cool. Okay, so 
How'd you come up with the name Social Media? <laughs> that coming up with the title for the for a book is the hardest thing ever. I have to tell you, it was crazy hard. I maybe threw out a thousand different possibilities, and then I asked my PLN for support, and you know, and I remember texting George like on a regular basis. What about this? No. What about this? And then he would say, What about this? What about this? Um, my my friends. I think we were all so invested in this, and. Um, And then just one day, it it was George who actually came up with it. And he said, and he just threw it out there, I think, because we had been so tired of throwing things out there. And as soon as he said it, I said, that's it. He said, really? I said, yeah. And then a friend of mine said, yeah, but won't people just think you don't know how to spell? I said, no, I'm an English teacher. So it's a, you know, it's kind of a pun, right? Like it's social media, social media, it rhymes. I said, but, you know, we're talking about leadership. In terms of social media, it's perfect. Um, So that's where the title was born. Oh, that is so cool. Well, we're going to have to put links to George's, all of his resources, too, because he's amazing. Um, So that's perfect. And we'll have uh, links to your book also, because we always put a blog post together to go with this. So, um, you know, I hear this, and I know this question, and it's in your book, but why does social media need to be part of teaching and learning today? Because it's part of our world. I I really think so many, there are so many pluses. I know we're fearful, um, but social media is is literacy. And it's the way in which when we talk about literacy, literacy is about reading and writing the world and social media is a part of it. And when I read something like the um, University of, of Stanford in 2017, I believe, it did a study of middle school students and most students couldn't tell the difference between a credible news source and one that was sponsored. And so when I think of the opportunities to use, um, to, to, to have digital citizenship in context with a class account, for example, um, you know, really being able to show kids that social media is a place to learn and share learning, to empower others, like we were talking about with some of those uh, student movements, right? And to be a more powerful influence on others. I mean, we are doing that mo- that mentoring for them, but we're also showing them what appropriate use looks like in the context of our classrooms. Um, and I think that's important. Our, our digital citizenship lessons can't be, you know, 40 minutes in September. And then, you know, we say, oh my gosh, you're not using social media appropriately or in positive ways. Why is that? We need to, it needs to be an ongoing conversation. And that's why it's absolutely essential. Well, the, the hardest part is there's some schools, in fact, there's countries <laughs> that are banning uh, mobile devices. Mm-hmm. And uh, how do we handle this when they block? I mean, I know I've been to several schools and observed where they take their phones and they they take them out and they can't put, touch them while they're in school. Well, it certainly is easier to do that, isn't it? (laughs) It's it's easier to shirk the responsibility and say, this is not our problem. And do we have a distraction problem with our students? Absolutely, we do. I work in a high school. I mean, gosh, you know, just this past week, I, you know, even though we had set up norms at the beginning of class, there were still a few students who pulled out their phones when we weren't actually using our phones. We, We definitely, we have a 
We don't have enough devices, so we rely on phones. But when the kids weren't supposed to, they were using them. And so I could see how as a teacher it'd be like, it just be, is easier. Just get rid of the phones altogether. Um, but I think self-regulation is huge. I think that, again, going back to that, in, to me, it's an inequity. Um, if I don't have a parent at home that is really emphasizing effective media use, then who is teaching these kids how to do this, you know, and we have not, I would say it's been at least one of my students said, you know, I've been on YouTube for over a decade. And it's true. Like this generation of kids have almost been on social media entirely by themselves, right? Without many adult mentors. And so I, I just, I worry about the inequity, about the huge chasm that exists between kids who have mentors and kids who don't. And I think that it's complicated. And I think that we just need to engage in courageous conversations and we need to um, to figure out how this is going to work because there are many, 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 many positives. And there are so many ways to learn using these powerful tools in their pockets um, that if we're not showing them as educators how to use them to learn, who's showing them? So you brought up something because, um, you know, I think that the problem is, is that we don't talk about this enough as a community issue. And um, parents don't even know. I mean, sometimes I I have a granddaughter who uses her phone and I mean, there is some controls and things on it, but, and, and they're pretty smart about this, but there are a lot of parents that aren't, that don't understand. So, um, you know, your book is great for education. I'm just hoping I really feel that parents need to also know what's going on. So do you do anything, you know, right now with parent um, groups and... So I do. I speak to parent groups all the time. And and it's so interesting because every group is a little bit different. I think um, in in some of the research that I did, I don't have it offhand, um, that parents actually were in favor of technology and social media use um, because they recognize that it's part of our world. So for me, sometimes it's a matter of, you know, are we talking to parents? Are we on the same page? How can we build communication? I know I put on workshops for parents all the time and they have a million questions. What's the right thing to do? You know, what are the limits we should set? What role does this play in learning? What else can I do? What should I be doing? You know, there are tons of questions. I'm, I'm actually thinking um, that it's time that I create a companion book um, for social media just to address some of that. There is a really good one right now called uh, ScreenWise that uh, uh, Deborah Heitner does a really nice job with that book too. Um, but I do feel like the communication lines need to be open. It's got to be IT teachers, admin, you know, board administrators, parents, but students too, right? Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I was most surprised at in my journey was how many times I would say, so what are you guys doing? You know, and they would say, oh, take a look at this. I, you know, I remember talking a little bit about my book and one of my students said, actually, I have a blog where I showcase, where I review books and as a result of this, she said, I was able to, you know, I, I'm able to go to conferences and I've met so many great, uh, like so many authors. I'm like, what? Like, 
how, how, how would I know this? She's in yeah. high school. How would I know this unless I've asked? And so seldomly do we ask. So I said, Michelle, so Michelle wrote a vignette for my book, you know, just talking about her experiences. It's so tragic to me to see that kids are doing all this learning on their own. And it seems so separate from what school is. And if only we could sort of marry the two, right? So that we are we are bringing what they perceive to be real life in school. Just this today at lunch, one of my students, Maddie, said to me, Miss, I'm finished. She had been working on a photography website and like tirelessly making it perfect. And she's not even taking photography. This was just a passion project of hers. And so oh. I tweeted about, and she said, oh, thank you for sharing it. But I said, no, thank you for sharing it because none of us, or I shouldn't say none of us, because there are so many educators that do, but I don't think we do it enough. We don't listen to, to hear what kids have to offer us. And then we have the curriculum knowledge And then if we think flexibly, how can we bring that into our classroom? So now we're not only validating and shining a light on something positive that one of our students is doing, but then our curriculum is actually, actually comes alive as a result. Well, you're, you're hitting on what I love, passion-based learning. I mean, it's just, to me, if you, if every child, every adult, you know, it's just so important if we can look at what we really, really love just amazing. I agree. I mean, I I think working in a high school, there are so many kids who don't know what their passions are. Um, And, and yet, and and I know that's just such a big issue too, right? What is passion-based learning? Um, For me, it's really about um, showcasing or showing kids as well. So in addition to the fact that they can pursue their passions through social media, but also demonstrate kindness, um, because that is a huge passion of mine, right? Um, for someone who was bullied, um, for, for many, 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 many years, um, showing compassion and kindness towards others is something I make a priority. And I know, um, that there are, you know, instances of mean behavior online, cyberbullying, though, interestingly, the latest research from common sense media that was written by students actually doesn't have cyberbullying as high as some of the other research things I've looked at. And and that's something I'm exploring. I'm doing my master's with a a specialization in social media and technology. And that's something I'm taking a look at right now. So why is there a discrepancy? Why do we see such big numbers and then such little numbers? But of course, um, cyberbullying is an issue. Um, You know, treating each other with disrespect um, happens as well. But how often do we show our kids in the spirit of learning and connecting, that there's a human being at the other side of the computer. How often, I I remember um, one of the projects that I was involved in that really has impacted my heart so much, um, Monica Sitnik Rocks. It was a a hashtag that I had created for a young girl who was suffering from a, a brain tumor. And all of the students and classes that connected through that project showed this incredible empathy and love for this little girl And I remember one class in particular, the teacher said to me, once a week, we make sure to reach out to someone in need. And I think, wow, once a week in this class, imagine if we all did that. And maybe we even just did it once a month. You know, what would be the difference? I think it would be incredible. So you brought up um, 
passion and kindness. And I mean, I'm thinking of Tamara Letter and some of the others that are out there that are doing this. And I mean, I met you because I went on Twitter. And also, I, you know, I'm watching this kindness movement. And I think that if we can have our children be able to connect and share, like you're saying, these kindness you know, pay it forward moments and things that they're doing for others in their school. That's one of the things, reason why I do this podcast. Because I found that there are stories that are happening that might be on Twitter that other people don't see, or there might be behind walls that nobody hears about. And definitely you need to write that book for parents and keep getting out there. But I think you're going to also need to write one for students in a different way. Somehow, I think there's... I mean, the whole idea is telling those stories. They're just so big. You write the stories in here, in social media. But I think either that or a YouTube channel or something that gets out where the kids actually see it. I I think one of the things that was super important to me in writing the book was that I didn't assume the voices of the kids. Uh, I really wanted the kids to be uh, there for each chapter. And I have my own little podcast. It's only 15 minutes long. Um, And it's not super regular, but whenever I see or hear about a student who's making a difference, I try to showcase that student in that way. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so if you have any students that you encounter in your work that are making a difference, please send them my way um, because that that is exactly what I want to explore. But I do, I wish for a world where student voice becomes such that um, I don't need to write a book. They do, right? That they talk Uh about it. Yeah, Um, because their voices are powerful and necessary. I... I think you, we've said it all right there. <laughs> that is a great way to pull everything together. It's about the students. It's about our fu- their future, our future. And social media does help that because it's never going away. No, I don't think it is. It's not going away. And if it's, it, we need to bring that back in as part of our world in and out of school. It has to be there. How do we make digital leadership happen other than doing what you're doing? You said you're going to have students out there talking on your podcast, getting out there to talk about the kindness projects that they're doing and talking to parents. What are some things that other people can do? Well, it's funny because at one point you had said that here in the United States, it seems like we are, you know, really doing this and we're trailblazing. And I would say in pockets, definitely in others, not so much. Um, And so I would say first and foremost, we need to start having courageous conversations. So we all have the same privacy laws, right? We're all bound by the same things. And yet someone like Kayla Delzer is, you know, has a a Snapchatter of the day, an Instagrammer of the day. Her student who wrote a vignette for my book said, in grade three, I want to be proud of my social media accounts. So we have those kids And then we have kids where, you know, it's locked down and nothing happens, where we focus on kindness as if kindness can't also exist online. Um, And so those courageous conversations about what does learning look like? How does it need to be different? How can we leverage social media for good? Those are conversations we need to have at every level. I know certainly whatever table at which I sit, I have that conversation, Um, whether it be in the parent communities, you know, whenever I get to the district on Twitter 
with whomever will have that conversation with me. Um, those courageous conversations are really essential. I think leading by example, you know, there's nothing more, um, I, I don't want to say demoralizing. I don't know what the right word is, but when I see educators who are not, um, you know, celebrating each other or who are not, you know, respecting people's ideas and opinions and being kind online, that makes me very sad because if you look at, you know, Albert Bandura's theory of observational learning, kids look at us to be role models. And so we have to be very careful about how we conduct ourselves online. And I also think that there are lots of, uh, I think Twitter has really taken root in the educational community. And I see lots of, you know, pictures where we celebrate learning. And I know we talk about, sometimes we talk about, you know, if we don't tell our school story, who's going to. I worry sometimes that what is missing is the students taking ownership for what is being posted and the decisions that are being made. I mean, I know in our book club, it took us a full five minutes to craft a a tweet together. Yes, it takes time. um, But if I had just crafted the tweet and sent it out, that learning opportunity would never have happened for my kids. So how are we, you know, yes, they're under 13, but how are we empowering them to help formulate and mold what it is that our class Twitter account or our class Instagram account or a class Facebook account, whatever the case may be, looks like. And because as soon as I take that picture and yes, I ask for the kid's permission. Is this, is this okay? Um, then I'm doing the learning. I'm doing the posting and I'm taking that opportunity away from kids. So I would love to see more of that. Well, I think we're going to, because, um, this is going to go out there and we're going to talk about it <laughs> even more. Oh, this is just amazing. I wish we had more time, but I think that um, we're going to put a lot of the links and resources and even the people that you mentioned on the post. And uh, I may have to get you back here again. <laughs> <laughs> anytime, friend, anytime. Oh, that was wonderful. And I, I look forward to future books and future conversations with you because this was amazing. Everybody needs to hear this, especially now with everything going on. We need kindness. We need conversations and we need the kids' voices. Agreed. hundred percent. Thank you so much, Barbara. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate you too. Thank you. This was wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Jennifer Casatad. Look for a complimentary blog post about Jennifer, where we went together and pulled resources and links for you. So please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and we'd love a review. You can also subscribe to my website at barbaragray.net to receive announcements and updates so you don't miss any of the conversations.